1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies. I'm Craig Cervillo, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Erin Hockman about her excellent new book, Imagining a Greater Germany, Republican Nationalism and the Idea of Anschluss, published by Cornell in 2016. Dr. Hockman, hello and welcome to the show.
0: Hi, thank you for
1: having me. Yes, it's wonderful to have you. Before we begin talking about your book, um, we always like to begin here by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself.
0: Sure. So... I pretty much knew that I wanted to major in history when going into college. I'd really enjoyed uh, my junior year of high school, which was in Houston, Texas, um, world history. And so when I started um, my undergrad at Washington University in St. Louis, I took a variety of courses, but gravitated towards the history courses. And it was in courses um, on European intellectual history from 1930 to 1990. And then another history course on Europe after 1945 that I became really interested in German history. So in the intellectual history course, we had read some Eric Fromm and the and Adorno and Horkheimer and learned about uh, and, Heinrich Hull, and I became really interested in these questions of how to People were grappling with the rise of Nazism and then um, the legacies of Nazism and the same with the 19 uh, post-1945 course I was really interested in questions of oh what happens to kind of German conceptions of identity after um, you know the legacies of Nazism the Holocaust um, and uh, the violence of the Second World War and so after I became interested in this I started reading a translation I didn't know German yet um, like Wintergrass is Tim Trump, and some of Bull's work. And then I decided to start learning German after my sophomore year of college. And then during the second semester of my junior year in college, I actually participated in a study abroad program in Oxford. And there we did tutorials with, you know, individual tutors. And so I signed up for topics like fascism, um, nationalism, these, these sorts of topics. And in one of those tutorials, I was actually paired um, with a graduate student who was finishing up a dissertation on the Zutaten Germans. And in the course of that tutorial, I became really interested in this question of when nations and state boundaries do not align. And so we read a, kind of a lot of the more kind of classic older works, and so on and so forth, but then newer works. And so I became really interested in this question in the interwar period. Um, and I still ended up doing my um, senior honors thesis on uh, the dating question. I had actually gotten to make my first foray into archives while I was studying abroad in, um, in Oxford. I went to London and did some research in, well, at that time it was called the Public Record Office, but the National Archives, and also then did some NDC. Um, and so I really fell in love with the archival aspect. Um, of, uh, you know, trying to answer historical questions. And so I decided to go on and do a PhD uh, in German history. I went to uh, the University of Toronto, and I decided to really focus on this question um, on the relationship between Germans and Austrians, because here you had a case where citizens of Germany and Austria after the First World War all conceived of themselves as being members of a German folk, yet they were divided between two states. And I really wanted to kind of tease out that riddle more. And so that's how um, I came to the,
1: the dissertation topic initially. So um, the dissertation is what became the book we are talking about today. Yes. Yeah,
0: so the book is heavily revised. <laughs> Version of uh, the dissertation. The dissertation, um, in the course of research for the dissertation, you know, I initially started the dissertation thinking it would be a comparative project looking at how the supporters of the Weimar and First Austrian Republic, so Republicans, and I use that again in the sense of the supporters of these republics, not in our contemporary American usage of the term, um, how these Republicans support it. Of the republic, and what I found in the course of my archival research in those countries was that the, the supporters of the republic. So in Germany, that included the parties of the Weimar coalition, so the Social Democrats. Uh, the left wing of the Catholic Center Party, and then the left liberal German Democratic Party, and then Austria, it included the Socialist Party. And what I found is that they were often appealing to the Grossdeutsch idea, so this historical notion uh, dating back to the 19th century uh, that Germany should include Austria. Um, And I kept finding these appeals, and so I started realizing, oh, there's something there. It's not just going to be a comparative study, but I need to look, right, at kind of the entangled histories of those countries and how people, um, you know, across the borders are sharing ideas, are also physically traversing the borders um, to visit one another. And as I went forward in revising the dissertation into a book, I really focused in more on those entangled histories, so I conducted additional archival um, research once I had um, arrived at Southern Methodist University, which is where I'm now um, employed, and um, that resulted in not only the revision of pre-existing chapters, but also the addition of two new chapters in the book, which would be chapter four, which is looking at the cross-border celebrations between the Reichsbanner Schwarzburg Gold, which was uh, the Veterans Association formed, um, to protect the Weimar Republic. And then, uh, the Republicanische Schutzbund, which was the pro-military arm of the Socialist Party in Austria. And so I found that actually they're not just appealing to these ideas and an effort to create their own form of nationalism to legitimize democracy, but they're also constantly traversing the border and visiting one another to try to, you know, kind of make this uh, trans-border community, this low storage community, more concrete. And it also resulted in chapter six of the book, which is on this organization that um, the Austro-German People's League, which was the main organization of the era and has barely been written about uh, by historians. And so I really focused in more on looking at these kind of cross-border connections, which are central to the argument of my book, which states that again, Republicans appealed to a Grossrich idea and made um, kind of loud calls for an honestly to one day be realized in order to create their own form of German nationalism. However, I want to point out that the German nationalism was vastly different than the nationalism um, advanced by conservatives and right wing groups like the Nazis. So it was inclusive. So, for instance, Republicans argued that Jews and immigrants could be included in a closed to community. Um, they said that they wanted to work through the League of Nations uh, to achieve an onschluss and therefore create more peaceful international relations in Europe and hopefully start building up the United States of Europe, because after all, the peace treaties do not actually completely prohibit an onschluss. They permitted an onschluss to occur if Uh, the Council of the League of Nations gave its approval for it. Um, And they were hoping uh, that their nationalism could help to legitimize democracy. So they spent a lot of time and effort showing that the German national movement from its beginnings in the 19th century was very much connected to kind of democratic ideas.
1: Yeah, I definitely want to ask you more about those, some of the specific things that you said. Um, But to start, given that this is a topic that a lot of our listeners are probably not super familiar with. um, I'm wondering if you can talk just a little bit briefly about the actors in this book. You have the Republicans, um, I assume you have people sort of in the middle, people further to the left, and then you have people far to the right. Um, You could just sort of lay out the political landscape um, that you're dealing with (laughs) and, and how each of their ideas of nationalism not so much manifest themselves, but how they, sort of, what are they, how they come in conflict with each other, things like that.
0: Okay, yeah. So even though, as I mentioned before, it's looking at kind of the entangled histories of these supporters of democracy in both countries, um, you know, it's important to note that we're dealing with two different political contexts in in interwar Germany and in in interwar Austria. Um, So in Germany, if you look at the political spectrum, okay, on the very far left, so the communists, and the very far right, uh, and, you know, here we would include the Nazis. I would also include uh, the German National People's Party. These are all opponents of the new Weimar uh, Republic. So for the communists, they thought that the uh, reforms made during the revolution of 1918 to 1919 did not go far enough. They wanted to mimic something more along the lines of what the Bolsheviks had achieved um, in the course of the Russian Revolution. So they were opposed to the Weimar Republic. They saw it as too moderate and too much dominated uh, by the bourgeoisie and reactionary interests. Um, on the far right, parties like the German National People's Party and the Nazis opposed the Republic for other reasons. So um, the parties on the right, even though again there are disagreements about what they want to see replace the Weimar Republic, Um, They maintained that the republic and democracy and the supporters of democracy in the republic were un-German, so this was a common claim advanced uh, by the political right. They were also very much opposed um, to the socialists, so they had a very strong anti-Marxist streak, um, and then they wanted to crush the socialists. They were also very anti-Semitic, so their ideas are kind of what, uh, a German nation should look like, uh, were very exclusionary, racist. Their nationalism was often predicated on violence, um, so the use of violence at both, both at home and abroad, right, to achieve, uh, foreign policy goals. Um, and then you have, for instance, um, the German People's Party, which was a liberal party, but further to the right of the political spectrum. And this party kind of wavered in <laughs> its support of the republic, so it did come to support the republic while Gustav uh, Stresemann uh, was alive. But following his death in 1929, it veered further towards finding authoritarian solutions uh, for the economic and political crises of the early 30s, and there too there. Their nationalism, it was not as extreme as the German National People's Parties or the Nazis, but their their idea of German nationalism also involved kind of a strong um, anti-Marxist and occasionally anti-Semitic undertone um, to it. And then we have the parties of the Weimar Coalition, who, again, alongside the Austrian Socialists, are kind of the main um, actors, historical actors uh, in my book, and so here we're talking about um, the SPD, so the um, the Social Democrats, the Socialist Party of Germany. This was the the moderate wing, right, of the socialist uh, movement. They believed in uh, using parliamentary reform to achieve uh, better rights and conditions for workers, and then hopefully to one day achieve socialism. And they were among the more the most um, kind of full-throated supporters of uh, the republic and democracy. And then working alongside them was the left liberal German Democratic Party. Um, so this was a bourgeois party, but again was a wholehearted supporter of um, the republic and democracy until it uh, fell apart in the early 30s, when the middle class continued to splinter into more special interest groups. Um, and then we have the left wing of the Catholic Center Party. So the Catholic Center Party is quite complicated. The right wing of the party uh, was not big supporters of democracy in the Republic. And you can especially see this um, from 1930 on. You can think of Heinrich Brüning here. Um, and the work he's doing to try to kind of undermine democracy and institute more authoritarian solutions. However, the left wing of the Catholic Center Party uh, was very much uh, supportive of democracy in the republic. And these three parties together constituted what we would know as the Weimar Coalition. Uh, they also came together in an organization that, again, I talk a lot about in the book, the uh Schwarzburg Gold, which, again, was this Veterans Association formed in 1924 to support uh, the Weimar Republic and defend it against attacks by the uh, political right. And so they together, um, you know, create this discourse around this idea of gross nationalism. And again, as I mentioned before, even though they're not believing in a purely civic idea of nationhood, right, because they think the Austrians across the legal state boundaries, They often refer to them as their brothers or their tribal brothers, so Stom, this word tribe, is often used by them. Even though they're appealing to kind of these ethnic um, conceptions and sometimes even use the language of blood, they're very clear, and I've got quotes along these lines in the book from them, they're very clear that this is an inclusive conception of German nationhood, so that Jews are included in this, and not only are they included, but they are also vocal proponents of this idea, um, and the immigrants, uh, can be included. Socialists, who again are often labeled as un-German by the political right, can be included in this. And they're joined in developing, um, this discourse of gross nationalism by the Austrian socialists. So I'll now kind of shift our attention to the political spectrum, um, in Austria. Um, so the Austrian socialists, unlike in Germany, did not experience of this strong split in the left. So in Germany, right, the communists and the uh, more moderate socialists hated one another. Um, This was not the case in Austria. So uh, the Austrian socialists tended to use more doctrinaire language, more kind of radical Marxist language, which helped to keep the party together. But in practice, it was just like the SPD. So it was a reformist party um, working through parliamentary democracy, Um, to achieve change. And again, they, alongside these Weimar coalition parties, are all believers and proponents of this idea of gross-deutsch nationalism, um, which they use in an effort to not only contrast themselves with this political right, but show that German nationalism is, in fact, compatible with a democratic uh, and republican form of government. Um, Now, the the main opponent of uh, the Austrian socialists was a party known as the Christian Social Party, and this was a Catholic party uh, in Austria. And this party, uh, under the leadership of Ignaz Seipel, who was a priest, uh, really from the mid-1920s on, embraced increasingly authoritarian solutions. So the circle around Seipel in Vienna, again, increasingly moving towards authoritarianism as the the 20s proceed. and they actually, this party was interesting in that it had kind of mixed views of an Anschluss. So even though its members agreed that Austrians were members of a German folk, uh, people like Zeipel and, again, his kind of inner circle were not enthusiastic about the idea of an Anschluss because they wanted to kind of maintain right, their own control of Austria and they wanted to ensure that the Catholic Church um would have a predominant position in the state. Um, and then often uh, aligned with the Christian Social Party in Austria from 1920 on in the federal government with the Greater German People's Party, um, which was a nationalist bourgeois party. Um, again, they tended to advance an anti-Semitic, anti-Marxist um, idea of German nationalism, unlike their coalition partners. Uh, they obviously, as you can maybe tell by the name, uh, very much supported an Anschluss. And then, of course, you also have groups um, like the Austrian Nazis, um, the Landbund, which was a more kind of rural, um, smaller party. Uh, But that kind of gives you the gist, I think, hopefully, clearly, Mm -hmm. of the political
1: spectrums in both of these countries. Yeah, no, thank you for uh, being willing to do that. Uh, There's lots of parties with sometimes minor differences yeah yeah it, it does it gets confusing and uh i think anybody who reads your book will get a clear outline of all of these parties but it's uh it's yeah. excellent to have have you explain them uh to us um can you elaborate on how i important this idea of Anschluss actually is to these particularly to the republicans um and mm-hmm. people is this, is this a, a core tenet of theirs or is this something on the periphery Um, Is it a secondary goal, a primary goal? Um,
0: Okay. Yeah, so, you know, I think when we often hear the word Anschluss, we often think about events that happened, well, almost to this day, 80 years ago, right? The Anschluss of 1938, when Hitler annexed his native Austria, right, to the Third Reich. And so whenever people today hear the word Anschluss and they know of these events from 1938, I think these images often come to mind, right, of the expansion of a Nazi dictatorship, um, these really rabid outbreaks of anti-Semitism that occur in Austria after uh, the Anschluss. Um, and what I point out in my book is that uh, the Anschluss movement before this point, and really before 1933 when the Nazis seized power um, in Germany, was much more complex and diverse than we often think of, right? So that we sort of just view kind of the Anschluss movement or even German nationalism more generally through the lens of Nazism, uh, because that, that colors our view in a way where we're missing all these other participants in the Anschluss movement. And so, for instance, uh, one of the chapters in my book, uh, the last body chapter, talks again about this Austro-German People's League the you said I and this organization was the main entreprise organization in the Weimar era, it had not only committees to try to work out, oh, how are we going to legally um, unify these two countries, economically unify them, so it had, you know, committees to kind of do um, this kind of grunt work, right, to try to make sure, oh, the legal systems will be the same in both countries when an entreprise happens. But one of its main goals was also to raise awareness about an Anschluss and to kind of win over hearts and minds um, to the Anschluss idea. So this idea that uh, a German nation state should include Austria and What's interesting about this organization is that, again, before 1933, it's really the Republicans that are predominant in it. So, uh, for instance, the chairman of the of the German side of the organization from 1921 until 1933 is Paul Ruppa, who uh was a leading member of the SPD, so the German Social Democrats. Uh He was also president of the Reichstag of the German Parliament, to the Weimar uh, Republic, and he's the chairman of this organization, and he's joined by a number of other Republicans in this organization, and they really kind of influence, they kind of control the drill of the organization. So they very much, at these various rallies, even though this organization includes non-Republicans, this organization, by the way, is really fascinating because it includes anti-Semites and Jews, Catholics and Protestants, Republicans and anti-Republicans, Uh so even though they're participating in this organization alongside their political foes, they are constantly using this organization to broadcast their argument that, you know, nationalism, German nationalism and democracy are compatible. So they do things like call for a Großdeutsch republic, uh, you know, or they make arguments that, yes, Jews can be included. We don't believe in a racist definition of the Volksgemeinschaft, the national uh, community. And yeah, they're devoting a lot of time and energy into this organization, uh, which again is, is technically a nonpartisan organization. So it includes members of pretty much all the parties except for the Nazis and the Communists. Um, but then too, they're also spending a lot of time and effort in organizing just among Republican organizations, in particular, again, the Reichsbanner and the Republikanische Schutzbund, so, you know, paramilitary formations to defend. The republics in both countries, you know, they're organizing cross border visits. So the Schutzburn goes and attends, you know, the celebration of the Weimar constitution in Germany repeatedly. Um the Reichsbanner will occasionally travel over to Austria for events there. And so again they're spending a lot of time and resources in, you know, not only kind of just talking about post-Switch nationalism, but trying to make this idea concrete and bring people together from both sides of the border. Promote this argument that you know Jew and German democracy and German nationalism you know are not mutually exclusive categories.
1: Was the idea of Anschluss generally popular with ordinary Germans and ordinary Austrians, or was it something that they didn't really much care about?
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting question, and of course it's one that's hard to get at through the sources, right? Because the sources. You know, tend to be written um, by, you know, political elites or, or other elites within society. But what I actually found is that if you look at these various celebrations staged by the Banner and Schutzbund, or if you look at the various rallies organized by the, the Volksbund, is that there's widespread popular participation in these events, right? That this is not, again, just elites kind of. You know, proclaiming their support of this growth deutsche idea, not really following through with any actions, or that it's just confined to the elite. Rather, um, what you see is, for instance, when the Schutzbund goes and visits um, the Reich Center in Germany. It's not just people from these two organizations that participate in these events, but upon the arrival of the Schutzbund at the events themselves, and then when the Schutzbund, um, you know, goes to depart to go back to Austria. Huge enthusiastic crowds um, turn up for these events, um, and the same goes for these folks for rallies. And the interesting thing here is that you know you can try to figure out who's in the crowd based on either police report descriptions or newspaper descriptions, but then it's also interesting to try to figure it out based on the responses to speeches. So, for instance, in some of these speeches, people bring up um, Ignat Seifel, who again was leader of the Christian Social Party. Moving towards authoritarianism, not a big proponent of the honest group, and there's like large booze that emanate from the crowd, which leads one to believe is that, you know, since this is happening in Vienna, that the crowd is probably largely working class, right? And so, yes, this, these ideas do generate popular enthusiasm. They are certainly not confined um, to the political
1: elite. Yeah, this is a, a good place to transition to my next question. You have a, a whole chapter about. The creation of new state symbols and state and, mm-hmm. a, and even a state holiday um, yeah. I'm wondering if you can talk about those symbols, the flag, the attempt at the state holiday sure. um, how those are received um, how they're bought out and and sort of and any resistance to them, particularly on the right
0: sure yeah, so. Yeah. Uh, the second chapter of the book, as you pointed out, looks at debates about state symbols. So in the Weimar Republic, uh, the big debate is actually about the flag. So in the Weimar Constitution, there is an article that states that the colors of the state are now going to be the flag that we today identify with Germany, black, red, gold. However, this causes a huge uproar in Germany, when it's being debated, and then once it's finally written into the Constitution. Um, And here again, we see popular engagement, right, that this is not just debates confined to the political elite. So, tons of people um, and organizations start petitions, are writing government officials, publishing, you know, letters to the editor or newspaper articles protesting the change of Germany's colors, okay, and those people would be mainly on the political right, um, and all sorts of arguments were made for not replacing the imperial colors of black, white, red, that, oh, this is, it was under these colors that Germany had achieved its greatness, right, in the late 19th, early 20th centuries, that, oh, German soldiers in the First World War had fought and died for these colors, um, you know, so there's all sorts of arguments that are being made, but of course, there is a political undertone. The supporters of black, white, red often protested uh, the black, red, gold colors, or you know, even ripped down black, red, gold flags or chose to display black, white, red uh, flag in an effort uh, to protest the republic. So these symbols become very much tied to one's support or opposition to the republic. Now, the Republicans, on the other hand, uh, very much support the new colors of black, red, gold. And um, this, again, fits into their argument that it's not that they're un-German, like the political right exists, rather that their nationalism looks different. And so, for instance, they point to the use of black, red, gold throughout um, the German national movement in the 19th century. So they point to the use of these colors in the wars against Napoleon, in the Hombach Festival, the Hartford Festival, um, and then, of course, um, the Frankfurt Parliament during the Revolution of 1848 to 1849. And the argument is that it, particularly at the Frankfurt Parliament, that Austrian representatives are included, these are the colors being used there, and therefore, right, this new Deutsch idea of nationalism has, you know, the earliest attempts to create a German nation state, right, to forge German national unity. And this is one of the key arguments they're using to defend uh, the new colors of the state against these attacks by the political right um, that insists that black, red, gold, or the political right would use insults like black, red, mustard, or things like this uh, to criticize the new flag. they they use these arguments to say, no, these colors are intimately connected to a German national tradition, and this German national tradition was Deutsch in nature, and it was supportive of democracy. Um, and so you have this really heated debate, which, again, tons of people are participating in rallies for or against the new Republican flag, uh, you even have um certain people there's a law in effect, the law for the protection of the republic, which made it illegal to like destroy or insult uh the Republican state and its symbols. And so you even have individual citizens who will report right when they see the Republican flag being abused. Um so this involves a lot of civic engagement on both sides. But again, we see the importance of this first wage argument coming to the fore when Republicans are trying to defend um, the new colors of the of the state. And, of course, they point out, again, pointing to the entangled history, the Republicans point out that the black, red, gold colors are very much used in Austria, right? That they were used in Austria by a, a German nationalists during the Habsburg era, and that they continue to be used in the interwar period, not only by socialists there, but also by right-wing groups. Um, and then, on the other hand, um, in Austria, you have a debate about a national anthem and once again, you see a lot of civic engagement. So, uh, it was deemed that uh, keeping the the tune by Joseph Haydn and obviously the lyrics praising the emperor were not going to work following the fall of the Habsburg Empire. And so, uh, Austria actually has no national anthem initially. And you actually have again, individuals writing into the government proposing new lyrics and new music uh for an anthem. Eventually, um, a kind of de facto anthem comes about. The lyrics are written by uh Paul Renner, was the leader of the socialists um, in Austria, and uh new lyrics uh by a contemporary composer. Even though this becomes the de facto anthem, it never fully catches on. And as the Christian socials, again, under Ignat Bipel, try to increasingly institute authoritarian government throughout the 20s, they actually declare in 1930-31 that they're instituting a new anthem. It's going to be the old Joseph um, Haydn tune, uh, but with lyrics by the right-wing Priest Otto care parents' dog. And now, the interesting thing about this, this actually poses a huge problem for the Christian socials, because of course, the lyrics, or this melody, right, this Heiden tune, not only goes with the CG lyrics by Otto Kerr Kingstar, but of course, it's the same tune used for Deutschland, Deutschland, Uber, um uh, the Deutschland lead, which is the official anthem of the Weimar Republic. And so now what ends up happening, and again we see the <laughs> the Groß element coming to the fore, is that to protest this, the socialists start seeing things like the cream that in Vienna schools, one is going to sing the Deutschland, Deutsche Land, Deutschland overall, when this melody is played. And again, they make this argument on the grounds of you know their gross Deutsch nationalism and support for the republic and democracy. And then for very different reasons, the Nazis and radical right also disrupt the various ceremonies organized by the Christian socials. And instead of a camp stock, we're Deutschland, Deutschland, Über alles, as a way to protest the Christian socials and try to advance the cause of Nazism uh, within Austria. So in both cases, you see widespread civic engagement. And in both cases, on the part of Republicans, you see them supporting uh, their particular symbol, by appealing to this gross Deutsch um, argument, and by showing that right, the people in the neighboring country also use this particular symbol
1: yeah um yeah that's that's fascinating um and you know a little complicated uh it's because you've got you know people trying to decide new anthems new flags um and and as you rightly point out they become very contentious um I'd like mm-hmm. to ask you about another symbol the state holiday um sort of celebrating sure. the republic um you sort of meant you mentioned that this doesn't really take off um despite attempts um or it's not official in particularly in the austrian mm-hmm. case is that correct
0: in the Weimar Republic, there is no official state holiday, uh, for the Republic. So the Reichstag never pass legislation. They can never come to an agreement on legislation for state holidays. The interesting thing there is that you get the establishment of a de facto national holiday. Um, and that was August 11th, uh, which marks the signing of the Weimar Constitution on August 11th, 1919. And so, uh, Republican officials in uh, certain provincial governments and the federal government, alongside pro-Republican organizations, such as the Reichsbanner, actually work really hard to create popular holidays. Um, and for instance, Edvin Reds, who was um, the head of the Reichsquistler, which was a special office created after the war to work after these artistic affairs <laughs> um, in the state, he worked really hard to create this state holiday and he says he wants it to be different than imperial holidays where people were just kind of onlookers at the event but not participants and he says he wants to go and create folks to so these popular festivals and holidays where the entire population will participate and that this will help to again win over the hearts and minds of the citizens to the republic and they do end up both with his office and the Reichsbanner as a private organization you end up staging large popular holidays, even though it's not an official legal holiday.
1: Um,
0: the situation is actually quite different in Austria, where there you do have two legal uh, state holidays. So May 1st, which was of course the traditional working class um, holiday, and then also November 12th, which was um, the day that uh, the first Austrian Republic was declared in 1918. Now, even though you have this a legally recognized holiday, um, if you look at November twelfth, for instance, the Christian socials, once they're in control of the government from nineteen twenty on, doesn't work very hard to establish a popular holiday. Uh instead they pick up on older imperial traditions uh and Catholic traditions. Uh and again, they're not trying to attract people. To the Republican state, in part because the party is veering increasingly to authoritarian solutions from the mid 1920s on. The socialists, on the other hand, see huge celebrations in uh, major urban centers. They held you know, huge parades and rallies and demonstrations, you know, in the various districts of these cities. Um, But these are very much socialist-focused. So, for instance, they claim the republic for the workers, right, that the workers have created the republic, and they need to defend it against the bourgeoisie. And so there, even though you have a legally state-defined holiday, there's not that kind of effort to create um, a state holiday that would kind of arouse um, sympathy for the republic to extend beyond kind of the borders of these socio-political camps in Austria. So whereas in Germany, you have kind of the parties of the Weimar Coalition, so you have members of the middle class, you have workers, you have Catholics, you have Protestants and Jews all participating to try to create um, a state Again, it never becomes official, and the political right doesn't participate in it, but they do create these wildly popular celebrations that do at least in part transcend certain socio-political divisions in German society.
1: Thank you for clarifying that. Um, You mentioned earlier uh, these sort of cross-border activities Mm -hmm. um, in your introduction. I'm wondering if you can elaborate on this. Um, a little bit, because it, in the book, it's clearly it's clearly a very important part of the book, and important part of the overall argument of the book.
0: Right. So, you know, one of the things I point out is, you know, again, that Republicans idea of gross rights nationalism and support for an Anschluss is really critical to their attempts to legitimize democracy. Um, again, they're able to create this kind of national tradition. Right, pointing back to the 19th century national movement, particularly the Frankfurt uh, Parliament, they're able to say, hey, by advocating for an Anschluss in the present, that we are, you know, showing our national credentials. And they do interesting things, too, um, because, again, they're trying to create their own form of German nationalism that w- will be compatible with you know, a democratic body politic, an inclusive kind of understanding of nationhood, and peaceful international relations. And in order to kind of make that argument, they contrast Deutsch nationalism, which is what they say they profess, with two other forms of nationalism harbored by the political right. So they contrast their Großdeutsch nationalism uh, with conservative nationalism. Uh, they often label this either as being inclined through smaller German Right, which is what imperial Germany was. So Bismarck has purposely excluded Austria from the creation of a German nation state during his wars of unification. And of course, when Germany is first created, it does not include um, Austria in 1871. And so they claim, for instance, that conservatives in Germany are proponents of a type of nationalism that includes less Germans, um, because it excludes Austrians, and that it promotes dynasties, and their argument is that it was the dynasties, you know, the Hohenzollerns, the Habsburgs, right, these great monarchs in the 19th century that had prevented the creation of German national unity, uh, particularly at the Frankfurt Parliament uh, during the course of the 19th century. And so their argument is that democracy is actually better suited to achieving this greater form of national unity. And of course, they also criticize uh, the conservatives in Austria for, again, uh, harboring kind of Habsburg sentiments, right, which they said had destroyed like these attempts at German national unity in the earlier part of the 19th century. Uh, now they also contrast their Großdeutsch nationalism with what they label all-deutsch nationalism, which translates into pan-German nationalism. And so they argued that uh, right-wing groups harbored all the nationalism, which was uh, exclusionary, imperialist, militarist, you know, anti-Semitic, um, and so they're saying, again, that it's not that we're un-German, like the conservatives and the radical right insist, it's that we have this different form of nationalism. Now, in order to kind of, again, spread the message of this nationalism, make it a more concrete thing, they are not only you know, putting newspaper pieces or giving speeches, praising the ghostly type calling for an off group, but they they really endeavor to create these cross-border connections. So, for instance, uh, the Center and Schutzblatt travel across the border to participate in each other's uh, events. So, for instance, the Schutzbund goes repeatedly uh, to Germany to help the Center celebrate its anniversary. Uh, to help the Reichsbanner celebrate certain that they would sometimes have, like, Republic Day. Um And also they go and participate in these Constitution Day festivities, which I talked about um a little earlier. And then the Reichsbanner changes to Austria um for some November 12th celebrations and some other secrets you know, and other things. Um, but the point of all of this is, again, to show people – but Republicans do possess a national sentiment. It's just one that looks a lot different um, from those of the political right. And, of course, by showing that they have national sentiments, they're then able to make this argument that democracy is a legitimate part of a German national tradition. Um, and so they are very much engaging in these cross-border visits to kind of promote these arguments to try to popularize and legitimize democracy and send off these attacks by the political right
1: as many of our listeners already know ultimately this project failed um democracy did not take hold sure. in germany and we ended up with the rise of adolf hitler in 1933 um can you point to the specific reasons um why they were unsuccessful um could they have done so, something differently um maybe to be yeah. more successful um And if um, there was something in particular while you were researching the individuals for your book, if they sort of had, you know, things to say about it in sort of
0: 1933. Right. Um, So one thing I would, you know, caution against, and I can't remember if you used this word or not just now, uh, but I wouldn't use the word fail. Um, And, you know, there's been a number of historians recently that have argued against this failure paradigm when um, looking at the Weimar uh, republic. Um, instead, I would use the word that, you know, that democracy was actively destroyed in both these countries. Um, so, you know, again, the Republicans really did make this energetic effort um at, you know, legitimizing democracy, creating their own form of nationalism, trying to send off the attacks by the right. And in some ways, they were successful. There were their celebrations and activities drew large crowds. Um, in terms of, you know, like why this doesn't work in the end, one, I mean, you have to look at the political right, for instance. Even before the Nazi seizure of power, you know, they never buy into this argument that's made by the Republicans, right? That the oh, Republicans are also you know good German um, patriots. Uh, But this was precisely because the Republicans were advancing a form of German nationalism that the political right simply could not abide by, right? The political right was not going to include Jews in their definition of a German Volksgemeinschaft, a German national community. You know, they did not, you know, view democracy as part of a German tradition. But just because the right didn't accept those arguments, we shouldn't just dismiss them as being unimportant. The right couldn't accept them precisely because they opposed the Reich's vision of German nationhood and um, German state politics. politics. In fact, in one of the chapters, um, I point to the fact that the political right actually worked quite hard to try to break up the partnership between the Reichsbanner in Germany and the Schutzbund in Austria. Um, so they, for instance, started rumor campaigns um, saying that, oh, the Reichsbanner was sending weapons to the Schutzbund, uh, they also uh, tried to drive a wedge not only between the center party and the right center, but then between the right center and the, the Schutzbund. Um And that's because, right, the Christian Schutzbund were a Catholic party, and then the left wing of the Catholic center party participated in the right center. The right center it's, it's it with the Schutzbund. Um, and the Schutzbund, of course, was constantly uh, <laughs> announcing the, the Catholic Party at home, right? So that created tension. Uh, but the, the right was actively working to kind of break up this kind of cross-border post-to-age part, partnership between the Reichsbanner and Schutzbund, which I think points to the fact that, you know, they thought this movement had some Credibility, even though they're going to deny it verbally. Um, in terms of why it doesn't ultimately, you know, work out in the Republicans' favor, um, I mean, there's a number of factors involved here. Some of these are situational factors, um, such so the economic crisis that begins with the Great Depression, which then, of course, also leads to political dysfunction uh, in both countries. Uh, so, for instance, in Germany, uh, from 1928 until 1930, the Weimar Coalition parties, alongside the German People's Party, uh, were in control of the government. But then they can't come to an agreement over unemployment insurance methods in the wake of the Great Depression, and it falls apart. And this is when kind of the authoritarian forces in Germany, you know, realize they can start kind of deconstructing um you know, the Republic and democratic uh, norms and procedures. And of course, these, you know, these conditions also affect the ability of Republican organizations to stage festivities, to travel across the border, because they simply like, don't have the funds <laughs> uh, to do this anymore. So there's also the pragmatic um, concerns. Trouble in Austria actually begins even earlier, in 1927. Um, there's a court trial for some right-wing paramilitary members who killed a member of the Schutztrund and a young boy in this Austrian town. Uh, they're put on trial. In 1927, they're not convicted, and there's huge riots. Um, in Vienna, in July of 1927, the, the Justice Palace is burned to the ground. Uh, a number of workers and a few policemen are killed in the course of the event. And uh, this begins kind of, uh, you know, it's attempt by the political forces of the right to really start undermining social democracy and democratic norms, uh, which they continue to do and especially, um, you know, increase their speed at doing this in the context of the early 1930s. So I think, you know, the situational factors, the context is really, really, really important here. And of course, you know, in this context, right, you know, the DDP um, dissolves with the left liberal party because it no longer really has many voters as the middle classes splinter. Um, the Catholic Center Party takes a turn uh, towards the right, so the right wing of the party gains the upper hand in the context of the early 30s. And so, as people are trying to kind of figure out how to deal with the mounting economic and political problem, a number of Germans. Um, you know, are looking for for new answers, right? And so, you know, the Nazis in Germany are able to come in and say, well, we've never been associated with this, you know, they call it the system, right? With this hated Weimar system that's now, you know, not able um, to, you know, achieve any solutions to this kind of economic and political um, problem at the moment. Um, and so that makes it, uh, uh, you know, appealing to some people. But again, you know, it's not like everyone goes over towards the Nazis. And then in Austria, uh, you have the Austria fascists are actually the ones that take control first. Um, so they're finally able to seize power in 1934 following a brief civil war in which they defeat um, the Social Democrats. Um, and then, of course, they are um, put out of power following the Anschluss in 1938 uh, where the Nazis, um, take control. And, and one thing I emphasize in the book is even though these are the, the final outcomes, right, that you have a Nazi okay. seizure of power in Germany and then an Austro-fascist and then subsequent Nazi seizure of power in Austria, that we shouldn't just view the Weimar and First Austrian Republics through the lens or of, right, the Nazi and Austrofascist fascist periods. In other words, we shouldn't just see the Weimar Republics and First Austrian Republics as precursors uh, to these two dictatorships, right, that we need to study them in their own right and really look at the ways that, you know, people did try to support us, that these were republics that had republicans, you know, this old argument went, well, these were republics without republicans, and that's simply not the case. And there's some newer literature on the Weimar Republic that points to this, you um, as well. And just one other factor, I feel like I've been rambling a bit, but one other factor here too is to remember that the political right was willing to kind of use democratic norms and procedures to undermine democracy, but they were also very much willing to embrace the violence um, to achieve their final political goals. And that's actually huge debate um, within the right center and uh, within both of the socialist parties about the use of violence. And, you know, part of the issue is that neither of these Neither of the party leaderships, neither of the Socialist Party leaderships in Germany and Austria are willing to kind of fully embrace violence to oppose um, the Nazis and, Austro, and Austro-fascists. Um, and so, you know, they're, they both end up being crushed in the end uh, by groups that are willing to embrace violence.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's an important discussion because certainly nationalism is a timely topic uh, given the political mm-hmm. conditions, not just in the yes, United States, so. but but around the world as well. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we've taken up a lot of your time today, but before I let you go, we'd like to ask one final question here. So uh, now that this project is done and published, um, what are you working on now?
0: Yeah, so uh, thank you for asking. I actually uh, have started a new project um, that goes out of this, uh, first book actually, uh, that looks at how the idea of a German diaspora, of Germans abroad themselves, so Auslands, Deutsche, how they actually influence debates about politics, so, you know, democracy versus fascism, um, and debates about nationalism in both the Weimar Republic, um, and uh, the Third Reich, because as I found in the first book, right, that to fully understand, um, you know, the histories of the Weimar and First Austrian Republic, you have to look at how politicians and the public are associating with people outside the boundaries of the state, right? As I found in the first book, again, this relationship between German and Austrian Republicans is critical to their attempts to legitimize democracy. So if you remain confined within the boundaries of the nation state, you're missing a large part of the story. And so now what I want to do is expand uh, my view even further um, to look at, again, how this idea of a German diaspora and how Germans abroad themselves are influencing these debates about nationhood and politics uh, throughout the interwar period. And I've already started um, some research on this project, um, for instance, for Strongholds. Uh, which was the kind of conservative paramilitary group in the Weimar Republic that was against uh, the Republic and democracy. They actually have chapters abroad, as did the Reichsbanner. Um, so I, I'm starting to work through those uh, archival materials and, um, yeah, looking at both, not just Republicans anymore, but also uh, groups across the political spectrum. Although I, I do still want to emphasize, and this was one of the findings of My first book project, which I didn't really mention, is that, you know, we often think of German nationalism as being this kind of bad thing, right? A lot of the scholarly literature, especially in the wake of the Second World War, um, you know, saw kind of German nationalism as this inexorable march towards Nazism, right? That it was always kind of illiberal racist, exclusionary. And even from newer studies which acknowledge there were different strands of German nationalism and that there were instances of civic nationalism, these studies have often labeled any sort of mention of kind of ethnic conceptions of nationhood, so ideas like Stom, Tribe, which imply the sense of blood. Um, they've often said, oh, well, that automatically makes uh, – you know, this person, folkish, right, racist, exclusionary, anti-Semitic. And I found that's not actually the case, right? Because if you look at these Republicans I talked about in the first book, they obviously believe in an idea of German nationhood that extends beyond state boundaries and therefore beyond a civic conception of nationhood. Um, But yet they use ethnic conceptions in an inclusive way. And so I'm also interested in looking at how... You know, that strand of thinking, alongside conservative and right wing strands of thinking about nationalism, comes into play when we start looking at, you know, a much more globally conceived German national community, which is what my second project will do.
1: Well, it sounds like a fascinating project, and I'm, I'm hoping that when you're done with it um, and it's published, I can have you back on the show to talk about it. Sure. <laughs> I would like to thank Dr. Aaron Hockman again for being on the show. Um, And I want to thank everybody for listening and that we will see you all next time.